Okay, joining me on the Freedom Pact podcast today is Brendan Batson, OBE, former professional footballer for Arsenal, West Brom, Cambridge, uh, a very important figure in football history, an important figure for me as a football fan and particularly a West Bromwich fan and uh, a story really that goes deeper than the beautiful game and it's re- really why I wanted to speak to you today. So Brendan Batson, welcome to the Freedom Pack podcast. Yeah, thank you for having me on. So as I've been reading and, and researching your story and uh, it's a story I've been familiar with um, ever since I was a, a young football fan myself, um, I've been fascinated, especially with the your early years, how you got into this game. It's very unconventional. Um, so take me back to your earliest memories as a child, long before football came into your life. Please describe what those years were like and what a young Brendan Batson <clears throat> really uh, loved to do. Well, I was born in Grenada. Um, my family are really Trinidadians, but my mum was Grenadian. <clears throat> Excuse me. And when she was having me, because uh, I've got an elder sister and brother, um, she went back to Grenada. So I was born in Grenada. Um, my, my brother and sister are Trinidadians. My earliest memories, really, of growing up in the Caribbean was just running along a beach, uh, particularly in Grenada. I was six when I left to come to uh, Trinidad. And what I remember in Trinidad was um, we lived in one of the suburbs in Port of Spain, uh, the capital of Trinidad. And there's a big savanna. And what I remember seeing was uh, cricket and hockey, big Indian, Indian community in Trinidad. And there was uh, two colleges, Western Boys and QRC, and they had an annual football game. I'd heard about it, and I was promised to be taken to see it, but I, never, I was never taken. And then my mum sent my brother and myself to England to live with my uncle and aunt. Uh, I was nine, my brother was thir- 13. My mum promised that she would join us in England with my sister in two years' time. And it was when I came to England as a nine-year-old, I arrived in April 62, I went to a junior school in Tilbury. I became friendly with one lad in particular called Dennis Sheridan, and he was the one that really introduced me to football. Mm. And then, so I arrived when it was uh, the end of the football season for the school teams and into the athletics. It was a following term, September, the autumn term, um, I saw lads leaving before the end of school lessons and I was told they're the football players. And I thought, well, I better try that. I'll do anything to get out of the lesson. <laughs> so I thought I'd try that. And I went and had a little trial. I was a bit of a disaster. Uh, all of us who sort of progressed to the elite end always remember the first coach or teacher or friend who introduced you to football. So Dennis Sheridan was one, but it was my the, the teacher. As I remember right, it was a geography teacher, Mr. Fitzgerald. He was the one who took pity on me after my first uh, trial game. Uh, when he realized I'd come from the Caribbean, he said, well, maybe cricket was my game, you know. So, um, but he must have taken pity on me and I went back the following week. I think I managed to scrape together a pair of boots. And then um, I think they progressed quite qu- quickly from that. So I'd never seen the game, therefore never even played it. But I seemed to have a, a, bit, of a bit of a talent for it. And I've seen it progress quite quickly playing for my school team, then playing for uh, the district side, Thurrock Boys. My mum came two years later, started to play for a Sunday team. Then we moved to London, and I lived in, we lived in Walthamstow. And I got into the school team, played for Waltham Forest when I was 13, and that's when I got spotted by Arsenal. One of the old Arsenal scouts, a fellow called George Mayle, 
and invited to go up to Highbury after school on a Monday and a Thursday. And that's us. They were my first sort of tentative steps into professional football. Yes, very unconventional start. Um, you mentioned that nine years old, you come to the UK um, from the Caribbean. What was the, was there quite a big culture shift? Were you, I'm assuming you were <laughs> taken from one environment to another that are quite different? It was huge culture shift. Not only that, it was freezing cold as well. I mean, it was <laughs> April, but it was freezing cold. Um, we'd never seen snow. Uh, my mum had a vision for us as a family and she decided that we we're going to relocate to the England, where we had a better future there, the prospects of a better future. Um, so she sold it to us as a bit of an adventure, you know, really kind of built up what England's going to be like and we're going to see snow and maybe everything was bigger in England. And uh, I was looking forward to seeing snow, but that year, people of a certain vintage will tell you, the 62-63 winter was the worst winter for 30 years. And it's been the worst winter I've ever experienced in England wow. in all the years I've been living here. So whilst I was looking forward to seeing snow, I'd had enough of it after a couple of months because it just seemed to start snowing sometime in November and went through till March. That's what it appeared to me. So it was a huge culture shock. And um, even to the extent that my brother and myself one day were sheltering from the rain, you know, we were somewhere sheltering and some old ladies went past us and she said to us, um, you've been here for a long time, you know, the rain doesn't stop that quickly here. <laughs> They kind of, and it sort of comes down, everybody shelters. A few minutes later, sunshine's back again. Yeah. So, yes, it was a big, a big cold. But, but as kids, you do adapt very, very quickly. Mm. So it didn't take us that long. And, uh, but it was a big, uh, a big change. So for many um, young people who go on to have footballing careers that fall in love with football, it's because you're watching these heroes on, on screen, you're, you're hearing about these stories, you have these idols to look up to. But as you mentioned there, you weren't particularly a fan of football when you first found it. Um, and you often say football found me. Um, what was it about football that you eventually fell in love with? Because I can't imagine it was in the traditional sense that, say, my relationship with football. I think really was a chance to meet other boys and become part of a group yeah. you know that's what team sport is you know now because i showed a little bit of ability i think i was more easily accepted into that group yeah um because i was half decent at playing football and i think it was just um something that just seemed to grab me you know i was relatively good i was i was good at athletics I was quite quick um i used to go to an athletic club i ran in uh, athletic meetings i was i was always in the um the school athletics team. So I think it was just something I was good at and I was more readily accepted because I had to put up with a lot of different different issues, particularly around racism. You know, I didn't know about racism until I came to England. And my first experience was as a nine-year-old. So you had to really, I had to find a way of being more easily accepted. And that was what football did for me. And I, I loved it. I mean, I just, uh, I couldn't wait to get out there. No matter it was rain or shine, I couldn't wait to get out and have a, a kick around. You mentioned, we've, we've talked about the, the culture shock. Um, you touched on it, the experience in uh, racism at such a young age and not really knowing what that was until you, you came to the UK. What were your sort of first experiences um, with, with it and how did that affect you at a, at a young age? Well, I went to school in Tilbury, St. Um, St. Mary's, I think in Tilbury. I was nine years old and I was in the queue. I don't know how 
for long. I'd been in the school, um, but obviously my brother myself, my brother's in a senior school. I was in a junior school, April. So we kind of to the end of that first year. But, um, so I was a new boy, easily recognizable because I was the only black kid in the class and in the school. Um, also with, along with my cousin who was a year younger. So um, I was in the queue for lunch and a lad called me a chocolate drop, which meant nothing to me. I didn't have a clue what he was talking about. But then when I realized what it was, my my reaction, and it was from many a year, which I'm not proud of, but that was just my life. <clears throat> I would fight. I would start to fight because I couldn't, I couldn't cope with being called names. Mm. So I had to learn. I was up in front of the headmasters. I went to, when I went to the senior school, I was fighting the first day. And that was my default position was to flip and lash out yeah. and it went on for a while really even into the professional ranks when I got sent up um, three times we playing for Cambridge but it was one of those things that you, you gradually had to come to terms with and it became a part of your life on a daily basis literally on a daily basis so you're always aware that something could be happening whether it be lads running by you on the other side of the road and calling your names, being on the public transport. You could, you could almost, you could almost feel the atmosphere change with a crowd around because somebody said something racist that maybe I didn't hear, but other people did. And you got that sort of change of atmosphere. Um, so it was just something that, uh, you know, I'm not unique. It was something that all of us who came across at that, around that time, <laughs> sadly, it's still ongoing. You have to learn to cope with it. Some cope with it in one way, others cope with it in a different way. Um, my reaction in my early years was to have a fight. And as you started um, entering the world of football um, in, in, in the youth phase, in, in, in local teams, um, in trials, what were the sort of early challenges for uh, young black players in that time, in the early stage of their careers? And did you feel as though it presented challenges in terms of even getting noticed? Well, it came as a bit of a shock to me because I, my, my, my family had no background in knowing what football was about, what the sort of process may be um, in terms of club scouting. Yeah. So when I got approached, I was playing in a, um, a district team, a district side game, uh, Waltham, Waltham Forest boys. And that team went on to, um, got to the final of the um, uh, English schools trophy. Uh, the biggest for, for school boys. But when I got approached, um, I didn't really know what it meant. I was training, you have, to go, you have to go through the school. I was training Mondays and Thursdays after school, traveling up to Highbury, as it was. And uh, they had a big indoor, like an asphalt uh, indoor gym. That's where we trained. And I think the thing what I realized was, so you start off at a new term, you go there, and a lot of us who got scouted were like the best players in our, in our team. Suddenly you go there, you mix with slightly older boys as well. So all the things that you were doing naturally amongst your your teammates, suddenly you weren't the best player within that group training. You were just another another lad trying to find a way. I never thought about the colour issue until I got into the uh, the youth team uh, when I signed. In those days, you could sign at 15 but I, as an apprentice, but I stayed on the school in the extra year. So I signed when I was 16. And I was playing in the youth game had a bit of a nightmare. I think I was playing left back because it used to move you around as a young player coming through. I was getting on the, the bus going back to Walthamstow where I lived and I heard some lads talking on the bus 
about the game. They've been to see the game, youth game. Got a few people there at Highbury. And they singled me out because I had a difficult game, a bad game, poor game. Didn't know my name, but they could identify me purely on color. And I remember hearing something along the lines, I'm paraphrasing now, oh, that lad who's playing left back and the other lad said, oh, who? oh, the black kid. Oh, he didn't have a very good game, did he? You know, and, they, and suddenly I realized that I was easily identified. I always knew it, but it really came home to me then that on that pitch, for the 90 minutes or however long I was on the pitch, they didn't have to know my name, they could just identify me. So that's when you realize that you had to be, um, I'm not saying better, but around that time there was lots of, I was aware, probably not as a, too much as a youth player, but as I got into the professional game, I was aware that there was this whispering campaign, as I call it, about black players. They, they're lazy, they got no bottle, they don't like the cold, they can't tackle, all that sort of thing which is born out of sheer ignorance and prejudice, really. Yeah. So you, you realize you have to work a bit harder to maybe get over that hurdle that people have these doubts about you. Just um, go, circling back here, uh, we, we talked about how quickly you um, were signed by Arsenal. I think it was, was it four years after you really started playing football? It was quite a... a what was yes, it? Yeah, yeah. Yes, you started at nine... Um, signed by Arsenal at a young age is quite quite quick to make that jump. Would that point to because this is a debate in sport about whether um, the really successful, the really elite, which you were, um, are they born with talent or is it hard work? Is it safe to say that it takes a bit of both and that you have to be born with a little bit of something to be able to make it at that level and it's not just hard work? Yes, it's a combination of both. But if anything, talent is not enough. Mm. If you have a little bit of talent and you don't work hard, you're going to fail. If you've got, well, if you're really talented and you don't work at it, you're not going to be as successful as you should be. If you've got a little bit of talent and you work at it, then you never know where it's going to get you to. There's a number of players over the years. One that springs to mind is Kevin Keegan. They talk about Kevin Keegan, started at Scunthorpe, but he worked and worked and worked. He wouldn't say, a lot of people, I don't particularly agree with that assessment of him. Oh, he didn't have the most talent, um, but he worked hard and made the most of his talent. Now, I don't particularly agree with that. I think he had he had bags of talent and he worked and worked and worked. And I think that's what you have to do because um, it is very competitive. You have to be disciplined. You know, when I when I first I signed schoolboy forms Arsenal at fourteen. I got offered an apprenticeship at 15, but I was warned that we, all of us were going to be the potential intake of apprentices. The youth team coach, when he spoke to us as a group, said about, you know, you've got to make sure that you live your life properly. Those who are your friends now may not be your friends in a six months' time because they want to be going out on a Thursday night and a Friday night. You can't do that because you've got to play a game on a Saturday and this and the other. Um, you've got to look after your fitness. So all those things that you would more times than not young boys young boys and girls coming through as teenagers those are the things you'd be doing whereas we're in a very much more disciplined environment and if you wanted to be successful then you really had to work at it and be disciplined you know i mean there's lots of times my mates say oh let's go out on a thursday night nobody will know you're out but you knew psychologically that you weren't preparing properly for the game on a saturday and psychologically you know you in the first minute you have a bad touch on the ball the whole game could go to pot 
So yes, you do have to be single-minded in pursuit of what you would like to be. Yeah. And when you sign for um, a team like like Arsenal at such a young age, and I, I wonder because I see now through the jobs that I've uh, done in my career so far, I've worked um, in partnership with football academies and I've seen a lot of young players who um, sign to football academies and they sort of walk around the place as if they're already the next Ronaldo, as if you know they've already paid off their parents' mortgage, or they're already eyeing up their, their first car. Um, and the sad reality is that only maybe 1% of those will go on to be uh, professional footballers in the long term. But when you were in that academy setup from a young age, what was your mentality like? Uh, what were the mentality of your peers? Was it kind of the same or was there a bit more humility about it? It's a different era. You know, um, young players exposed a lot more than I was you know, during my time. But I think at Arsenal, going back, I mean, I think I was fortunate that a club like Arsenal picked me up at the age I did and they kind of mentored me through up to the point when I realised I wasn't convinced enough in my performances for Arsenal that I had to go and find a, a club that would uh, be better suited to me. And one of the things, you know, Arsenal, so as you start as a young kid, the, the away dressing room was where the youth players and the reserve team players changed. And we had blue and green tops. The first team dressing room had the first team players and they had red tops. So you knew immediately you started off at Arsenal, you went in, your ambition, my ambition was to get in that first team dressing room and get a red top because then I knew I'd be on my way and I'm in the first team setup. Now, I never made it. I played a dozen or so games, a lot of them were sub, but I never got into that first team dressing room and I never got the red top. Hmm. So I had to go elsewhere to sort of progress my career and I knew I had to go elsewhere to progress my career. And I think those boys, we had, we had lads who came down from Scotland. Those days, obviously, the recruitment was from Ireland, Scotland, Wales, etc. Women with very big reputations and within a season, a lot of them are gone because they couldn't, for whatever reason, they couldn't cope. I mean, I know a couple of lads who got just, they were homesick and they couldn't seem to cope. They couldn't get over that not being able to be going home to mum and dad or whatever on a regular basis. So there's a lot of reasons why people don't make it. But I think what all it comes down to is a competition, you know, and you've got to be determined. You know, It doesn't happen so much now, but a lot of players back in my era, for instance, there, was a, there were a lot of examples of players not making it with a the club they originally started at, dropping out like I did into a, you know, I went from first division to third division. Before you knew it, we were getting relegated in the fourth division. Some players went non-league but kept on playing and then suddenly they get another opportunity. That doesn't appear to happen so much now because of the um, recruitment is worldwide. At the big clubs, it's worldwide. Yeah. But you've got to have that determination to say, you know what? The next game I play could be the game where a scout is watching me. That could be the break. And when it comes around, I'm going to grasp it with everything I've got and give it my best shot. I think the, you, you're touching a point there where I've seen kids going to the West Brom Academy. You know, I, when I'm in England, I don't like using, I don't like driving. So I go on public transport and you can, you can get um, the train or the tram to the Hawthorns. And I think when I was doing some stuff um, with some coaches, training at the, the, at the Hawthorns, about the academy. And I see some kids 
on the trams or the trains in their kit, looking around and go, can people see me? I've, I've got West Brom badge on and everything. And they're swanning around a little bit. I'm thinking, well, you've not even got there. You should be a little bit more humble. You expect at that age to be a little bit full of yourself, but as long as you can harness that and not let it overpower you in a way, that you, you lose sight of what you're trying to achieve. Mm. And sadly, it's not only the players, it's the parents as well. The parents put a lot of pressure on their boys, and now you've got the girls you know, going into the professional game. And they put a lot of pressure on because, as far as they're concerned, my, my little Johnny or whoever, Harry, is the best thing since George Best yeah. or David Beckham, you know. <laughs> and there's a lot of pressure on young kids now, yeah. Yeah, that's a very interesting um, point. I've watched a lot of um, academy football over the, over the last couple of years, and even down to the ages of seven, eight, nine, you see parents on the on the on the sideline, um, you know, oh. getting so invested in these games, and they almost look at and treat their children like elite athletes, and and you, yep. they're booking in with private performance coaches, S and C from such a young age, and. It, I imagine it's a it's a big pressure cooker uh, of an environment for for young children. Well, the, the, the sad fact the sad fact is that and the stat hasn't changed for many a year, hasn't changed since I've known it. You can sign as a scholar at sixteen. Seventy five percent of boys who sign scholarship at sixteen are out again by the time they're twenty one. And one of the big problems because you you got a three year scholarship with training contract. You could sign pro at seventeen. Those who don't get signed on at 17, you know, they got they can still keep going, going, but then they make a cut. Maybe that's 19, and they say to them, you know what, you've been with us a long time, but I don't think you're best suited for this club. Therefore, you have to try to find another club. The exit strategies aren't good, but a lot of boys are so shattered because sometimes they've been in that setup since they were eight, nine years old, yeah. and from being told you're the best, you're the best, you're one of the best, whatever, they're suddenly being told you're not good enough for us. And they're so shattered, a lot of them give up football completely. They don't want to go. They're embarrassed because they've left their, their mates when they were in club football, you know, playing junior football. And you're an elite end now, but by the way, you're not good enough now. And they, they find it very difficult. So it's not easy. And that, that, not just football. That's an elite sport, per yeah. se. Oh, absolutely. Um, bringing this background to uh, your journey, um, I think the beautiful thing about football today is for the large majority of kids out there, um, no matter where in the world they're from, they can look at leagues like the Premier League, you know, the, the Bundesliga, the La Liga, and they're likely to see someone who represents them. They're likely to see someone they can relate to. Um, but when you were in those formative years of your football career, did you have many black footballing heroes you could look up to? Because even you know during the the pomp of the three degrees, I think there were only about forty black footballers in the English league system at that time. So you couldn't have had too many heroes to look up to. No, my, my sporting hero was um, well, Muhammad Ali, Cassius Clay at the mm. time. It was Cassius Clay before he he changed? That that was my sporting hero, a black sporting hero. And funny enough, when he beat Sonny Liston against all the odds, we thought Sonny Liston was going to kill him. <laughs> when he beat him. I was at school in Walthamstow, McKenzie Tech. The first time I saw white kids writing a black person's name on the on the board, on the blackboard. You know, it was Cassius Clay. Everybody wanted to be Cassius Clay because he was so, as he said, he was so pretty. 
He was so good. He was the greatest. Everything about him almost spoke about what youth was about in that time. You know, he was confident about it with his own ability. But I mean, I was—I think I was nearly 14 before I saw another black kid, he's a mixed, mixed heritage kid, on the opposing team. I never played against a, another black kid going through until I was about 14. Then when I joined the team in the um, Regents Park, there was another black kid on that team. But around that time, as I mentioned before, a lot, and there were hardly any of us coming through. But this kid as well was on Tottenham's books. And when they offered an apprenticeship at 15, his parents wouldn't let him join because they were saying, there are no black kids in the professional game. My headmaster at school in Walthamstow, because I was missing a lot of um, school time, because I was, I was playing for the district side, I played for Essex as well, I was being given permission to leave classes early to go to, to the games. When the headmaster saw, for some reason, my attendance record, he pulled me in. And when I told him what I was doing, I said, I'm getting permission from the school to go and play. And he said, what do you think you're going to be professional football? And I said, well, it looks as though I've got a chance. You know, I've been at Arsenal since I was 13. And he said to me, he said, that's, and he said, you never make a professional footballer. They're none, they're no black footballers. Something, something the effect of that. Um, they're none like you. That's my headmaster who told me that. Yeah. The only mistake I made was that when I did sign professional terms, I should have gone in with my contract and slapped it down on his table and yeah. said, there you are. You're going to apologize. Wow. <laughs> but wow. I never did. Yeah. Um, so you mentioned you didn't play too many times for, for Arsenal, but you do hold a, a real place in Arsenal history as the uh, first black footballer uh, to appear for the club. And Arsenal, um, I think it was this year, yeah, they put out a really good piece um, for Black History Month. It was about a four yeah. five minute video on their YouTube channel of your story. And I thought, you know, I, I encourage everyone to go watch that. That was that was um, such a good watch and such a good edit by the Arsenal team. Did, at what point did you know that you would become the first uh, black footballer for Arsenal? Did you know, know at the time or was it not some, something you didn't realize till later on in your career? No, I genuinely didn't know. Um... I made my debut. I came on against Newcastle up at Newcastle for Charlie George, who I saw at the weekend. I was down at the Emirates for the weekend. Wow. And I made a point to, to, to let Charlie know I was coming and we, we had a chat. Uh, he was unwell. I think he was thrown up in a dressing room half time and I came on for him. But I didn't know, generally, I didn't realize until many years later I'd retired. Oh, wow. And I'm being introduced at an anti racism event at Stamford Bridge. And uh, the person introduced is quite funny, really, because. He said, I want to introduce Brendan Batson, the deputy executive of the PFA, first black player to play for Arsenal. And I think I must have thought, really? And then he went, and the first black player to be sent off three times. <laughs> it was like, one minute he's praising the next minute. He's but no, I, I didn't realise. And it didn't, I don't think, um, I, I always keep saying it's an accident of birth, really. I mean, and somebody's got to be the first. It just happens I was the one. But it wasn't something that I was conscious of. Um, more than anything, I realised leading up to the time when I said I was going to leave Arsenal that I wasn't convincing enough in my um, performances. And I felt, so having been part of the the first team setup, I knew I was plenty good enough for the reserves. I've been playing the reserves since I literally signed. Um, so I knew I was good enough for the reserves, more than good enough for the reserves, but I knew I wasn't good enough at the time for Arsenal first team. So there was almost a little bit of embarrassment within me and I thought I've got to leave because I couldn't see me having a career 
by staying at Arsenal a day longer than I than I had to. So, yeah, I left just for my 21st birthday and it was the best decision I made. Wow. Now, this is something that, as you mentioned earlier, um, a shame to say as a football fan, still goes on today and that is uh, racial abuse on a football pitch, in the stands, um, online now. Mm. Back then, when you first... Um, started experiencing uh, racial abuse on the football pitch uh, from the stands. Where did that take you mentally and what kind of resilience did it take to battle through that? And did you ever let it discourage you or put any doubts in your mind about your career? No, it never did. Because as I say to people all the time, this wasn't new. What was new, the racial abuse was it started from the time I was nine years old mm. when I came to England. So I was getting that I was used to being on the receiving end of racist abuse. You know, I'd be in fights, I'd be, you know, always confronting it. When I was playing parks football, I was getting abused. We, I played in the team, biggest league in, uh, in England, well, in London, Regents Park League, where all of us in that team were on professional books. We were all signed as schoolboys. The manager recruited the best players. So we had a, quite a few people watching us because they knew about us. But within that, we were getting racially abused. I was getting racially abused and I was playing with another black lad at the time. Um, what changed when you go into the professional ranks is the volume, obviously. Suddenly, you know, I remember my debut coming on at half time, the flipping noises I heard, I realized they were monkey chants. And, you know, then you heard one or two things going on. So, it wasn't a new phenomenon. Is the, the the volume was what changed, and I my view was I don't care what you call me. Um, it wasn't pleasant, and family and friends were well, not strong friends, but family never saw me play much because why are they going to come into a stadium when they're going to hear all that abuse that being directed at me? Mm. So, and because I was in a my, very much in a minority when I was at Cambridge, we had another black lad join us a couple of years later, but I was a focus. You know, I was captain of Cambridge as well. And then, so I was getting full barrels. Yeah. My view was, I don't care what you say, I'll see you next week, I'll see you next month, I'll see you next year. This is what I do best. This is what I enjoy. Um, I keep saying professional footballers like overgrown school kids. It's what we did at school. And our school days have been extended into the professional game. Now we're getting paid for it. Yeah. They get paid a lot at the top end. But even... You know, we, we literally got we've got five literally five leagues now, you know, with a nationwide league. So it's it's a joy to be able to have the prefix professional footballer mm. because you know you've reached a certain level. And I'll be damned if anybody's gonna chase me away from that. Beautiful message, beautiful message. Now, um you eventually end up at West Bromwich Albion, um my my football club, um a historic football club. Now, um, my father started supporting West Brom in the 60s. So um, when I was growing up uh, in the 90s, I was always told these stories of um, seasons long ago. And, and I was always told the magic of the three degrees and, and those amazing teams from the past. So I was brought up with these as, as history lessons. But for those who uh, may be listening to this podcast who aren't familiar um please could you explain what we're referring to by the three degrees, who they are and why they are significant? Well, it was um, 
on a personal level, it was because of Ron Atkinson, who was my manager at Cambridge, when he got poached or approached to be the manager of West Brom, I was his first signing at West Brom. At the club, in this order, was Laurie Cunningham first, who came from Leighton Orient, and Cyril Regis, who was, play, Cyril Regis who was playing non-league football at Hayes. And he was there, so there were two of them. I joined, and it just so happens that at the start of that, so I joined in, um, I think it was a January, January, January 78, Start the following season, the three degrees, the female group who were, who were um, at King Charles, Prince Charles at the time, that was his favourite group, they were appearing in Birmingham. And Ron, looking, he was never shy of publicity, Ron, and opportunities. He then nicknamed, when somebody said something ordered three degrees appearing in town, they don't about watching them and come and have a look at, we've got the three degrees here, the proper three degrees, mm-hmm. something like that. And that sparked a load of um, publicity. And it was amazing, really. It's how it stuck, um, the three of us. But I always say it wasn't just because it was the three of us. We were, West Brom were the first team to field three black players on a regular basis in a top flight. Yeah. But it just so happens we were, and I was very fortunate to join a team that was just beginning to, to flourish. You know, a, a blend of experience, young players coming through. You know, people like Derek Statham, Brian Robson, um, Tony Brown, Mr. Albion, there's a lovely statue of him at the outside of Hawthorns. Mr. Albion, record appearances, record goals. So there's a, there's a real nice blend. Um, and we were playing some fantastic football. If we weren't playing such good football, I don't think they would, that focus wouldn't have been on us as much. But because we're playing a, a real blend of exciting football, and in Laurie and Cyril, two strikers, we had two of the most exciting players um, in the league at the time and it was just fantastic to be part of that team we didn't win anything sadly and we were only a team for I only played with Laurie for 15 months before he got uh, he went to Real Madrid but um, for that one season that one season only it was a joy yeah you mentioned there was it was a, a short time which might may surprise people because you know it, it it's such a um, a, a cultural trio like everyone knows this this story in the world of football there's been books written about it you know you, you, there's no shortage of, of information and media about this online how were you aware at the time of the sort of cultural significance this would have in the sort of history of football or at the time was this something you were just a part of and not really aware of the significance until later on I don't think we were aware of it. I think we were living it. So therefore, you weren't really absorbing it as much. And we, you know, the, the seasons are quite long. End of season, you go away and tour. I mean, that first season, we went away to China for three and a half weeks, you know, which is a really long trip and a, a, a totally different trip. You come back, then you have time with your family. And before you know it, you start pre-season again. So I certainly wasn't aware. I don't think any of us were aware of this sort of social impact we're having. We knew people were more interested in us and we knew the black community were whilst not being West Brom supporters were because you never saw anybody at the state within the stadiums and such um, we knew they were interested in how we were doing and I think we felt we were we needed to do well because we were sort of representing our, our community um, the black community in particular uh, so we weren't that much aware I certainly wasn't involved in like, like the players nowadays are much more involved in sort of social programs and they mix with the community much more, much more organized. The, the, the club becomes a focal point of stuff. Um, we didn't have that. 
back in our in our day. Um, you know, you've got the supporters club dues and what have you, but that's very um, insular. Uh, on the wider aspect, we weren't we weren't aware. And it's only it's only years later, particularly after I retired, that you began to realise when people just come up to you and say, "Brand new to me," and social things, they said, "We weren't West Brom supporters, but every time you were in town, particularly in London, he said we should come and see you because we just wanted to see the three of you." And uh, it's, it's very nice to know, but we weren't aware of it at the time. The impact. And how does that feel for you, um, given that you know you were a, a young man without any sort of black footballing heroes um, years down the line? You know, now you realise that you were that black footballing hero to a, a lot of young kids. Well, I think you realise. I think I, I do realise the um, the impact we were having, not just in terms of other kids wanted to become footballers as well because I had nobody to, to aspire to. I mean, there's Albert Johansson. A distance away, we heard about Pele, but there wasn't football on the television as much as we see now. So you, do, you weren't seeing, you knew the names, but you weren't seeing it. And as you say, if you can't see it, you can't aspire to it. Yeah. So now you know, and, you know, at, at West Brom, you know, I mean, I was a, I was a defender, but everybody wanted to be Cyril Regis and Laurie Cunningham. You know? <laughs> Not just black yeah. kids, but white kids as well because they were scoring the spectacular goals. And um, that was, the, the game's all about scoring the goals. So, um, yeah, it, it's it's one of those where you suddenly realise in later later years that you did have some sort of influence, maybe on kids, particularly black kids, thinking right, I can do that because now I'm seeing them. You know, when I spoke to like the people like Paul Davis at Arsenal, you know, that that um, a trio in midfield at a time um, with uh, Paul Davis, the late Rocky Rowcastle, and um, Michael Thomas. They were saying they were seeing us coming through and then thinking, Christ, we can do that as well. Wow. So you you do realise that you can, I don't like to use the word of inspire, but there's kids who maybe got talent thinking, flipping it, they've done it, I can do it. Now, um, I mentioned there some of my uh, early history lessons in, in West Bromwich Albion Football Club from my father. One that I particularly remember um, being shocked by at a very young age was when I was told that um, West Brom organised a um, football match that pitted uh, a team of black players against a team of white players. And growing up, you know, in, in, in the 90s, 2000s, to me, this was something I found quite shocking. I thought, oh, you know, I could never see that happening today. It, it doesn't seem uh, appropriate, but that's maybe because I don't have the context of the time. Um, reflecting back on that now, how do you remember that experience and do you ultimately remember as a positive thing? Yeah, I think you have to put it in the context. As you say, you have to put it in context. The genesis of that game was as a result of having a series of testimonials year after year after year. Players were doing 10-year service and you get the, the offer of a testimonial. And it was Lenny Cantello's following you had people like John Osborne, John Weil, um, Ali Robertson. What can you do different to attract people to come in? You'll always attract a certain amount of people who want to um, thank Lenny for his service to the club. But there'd be others thinking, oh, what am I going to go to a testimonial game for? You know, they're not really competitive. And, you know, but putting this together, and to this day, we're never quite sure whose idea it was. But the thought was, what can we do different? What can we do differently? And that's when that's where the idea came from. And we never once thought it'd be anything other than a novelty game. 
Mm. And the good thing about it is that there were black players who were coming, who heard about it, and they would just turn up saying, can I have a game as well? <laughs> you know, one or two lads are coming. We could have probably fielded two teams. And some of us, we just didn't know each other. You know, we knew names or whatever, but there's some from maybe lower division clubs and that we, we, we just come through we, we weren't aware of. One lad, Noel Blake, hadn't really got into the team at um, uh, at Aston at Villa, was it Birmingham? But he just turned up and said, you know, if you got a place, I'd, I wouldn't mind having a game. And he was a young he was a young lad, so it was it was a novelty game, but it was very very competitive. When we were in the in the restroom, I think it was Garth Crooks who said, "This is a testimony, but you got to, we got to make sure we win." Yeah. But there was no friendly about it. I think we won we won three two, wow. and it was a really good game. Uh, it was enjoyable. And we never once thought it was anything other than just a game of football. Yeah. And ultimately, how was how how was it received in the time between uh, both sets of players, fans, media? What do you remember from the the reception of that game? It was a it, it was a real joyous occasion. You know, there's yeah. stuff going on outside. There were there's some the black community was well represented. They came out to see it because it's a novelty game. They were they were doing jerk chicken outside and all sorts of going on. It was a real joyous evening. Um, people came through the turnstiles, people around, and we never heard anything negative about it. I think there were some bits in the papers talking about it can be divisive and anything, but we we never saw that. We never we never felt that in any way, shape, or form. And to this day, um, I will always defend that game because there's nothing other than a game of football with a slight twist to it. Beautiful. And do you remember any of the scorers in that game? I think Garth Crook scored. Oh. Um, I can't remember the, actually because it was, you know, the, to, to us as a black players, the game was incidental. Yeah. It was just being nice playing in a team where everybody looked like us. Mm. You know, it, it was just the dressing room was manic. You know, it was it was great fun. It was it was really great fun. So I can't remember. I've got good recall, but this is a friendly game, so it didn't really matter. But I think Crooksy scored at least one. Um, but it was just it was just a great evening, and um, it's a good laugh. You know, there's a lot of laughter as well. Oh, fantastic! Sounds amazing. So, before we sign off and and let everyone listening where they can find your book, I'd just like to sort of bring this full circle now and go to the end of your career. Am I right in believing sort of retirement from football was taken out of your hands due to injury? Yeah, I mean, it was an injury I had. When I first signed for Arsenal as a 16-year-old, I signed in the June, and I, I tore my cartilage in my right knee in October. Uh, 16 years old, it took me a while to get over that. I eventually did. I went on, we won the FA Youth Cup. I was 17 or going on 18 when I won the FA Youth Cup. And that injury, sadly, caught up with me literally when I was 29. I tore the other cartilage. My last competitive game was Ipswich away. We got beaten 6-1. And that was my last competitive game. Fun enough, there's a certain um, symmetry about it. It was in um, October as well, October 82. And I never recovered from that. And I had to retire um, January 84. Um, so it was taken out of my hands. I mean... I got a really good appearance record at West Brom and at Cambridge. From the time I got into the, the team at West Brom, one of the things I'm, I'm quite proud of is that I was never dropped during my time at West Brom. And I had, had my fair share of bad games, but I, I, never had such, I never had so many bad games that I was dropped. But um, uh, I just couldn't carry on. I thought I'd 
play on until I was well into my 30s, you know, 33, 34, 35 maybe. That was our pensionable age. We wanted to play to their pensionable age at the time was 35. Um, but I didn't make it. And um, yeah, I had to find um, alternative employment. Um, that's when I joined the PFA. So it was a, I was fortunate in that I had something to, I kept me involved in the game, but also something I thoroughly enjoyed after the, the very first 12, 18 months, which was difficult. That transition period from, particularly when your retirement isn't at your timing, it was enforced on me. So, but after that, I had 18 years at the PFA, it was absolutely fantastic. That is very interesting. You mentioned the PFA there. Um, I'm very fascinated when I talk to uh, elite sportsmen. I, I always ask this question about uh, identity issues when, you know, all you've ever known is this sport. You've always been the footballer, the boxer, you know, this is who you are. Um, I imagine it's quite a surreal experience when you experience that sort of a loss of identity. And this is something I've talked to actually a, a, another former West Brom player, Hal robson Carnu, about when, oh, I yes. spoke, when I spoke to him. Um, what was it like when you come away from being the footballer, especially when it's taken out of your hands? Is there a sort of identity crisis you go through? There is, and uh, being at the PFA, I dealt with a lot of players who suffered from that. You know, it's almost like people coming up to you and saying, "Didn't you used to be?" Mm. Because you're no longer the person that they knew you to be. Um, so that transition, you know, the first three years sometimes was very difficult for players. With me, I'm, I was quite philosophical about it because I picked up the injury. I took the best part of 15, 16 months before I called it a day, and in, in that time. I was almost coming to terms with it in my in my head mentally, because when I had the last series of operations, I wasn't bothered about get, about playing again. I just wanted to be able to walk properly and play my uh, two two babies really, and I just wanted to be able to, to to enjoy my time with them and not be hobbling around. So you have to, and you know, it's almost like a blink of an eye because it's only a, it, average career span in professional football is eight to ten years. That's all. You know, when you take into account that 40 or 50 players a year have to recharge for injury. So average career span is about eight to 10 years. Modern technology and training methods and that maybe extended that a little bit more now, but on the whole. So you know, come mid-30s, unless you're a blooming goalkeeper and they seem to be able to play forever, um, you've got to look for alternative employment. You know, um, not everybody can be a coach. Nobody's going to be a head coach or manager. Um, you've got to start. You've got to start preparing for that transition. And now the PFA do a fantastic job in, you know, making sure that players have got options while they while they're still playing. They've got time in their hands, do their coaching qualifications. Players are doing degrees, paying themselves for whatever they feel will be their second career. You know, everyone wants to try and stay in the game. Not everybody. A lot want to stay in the game in some capacity, but that is impossible. So prepare yourself because you've got a lot of life to live after you chop from football in your mid thirties. And my very last question that I ask every guest on this show, um, the answer could be anything. It could be your family. It could be uh, the work you do now. But right now for Brendan Batson, what makes life worth living? <laughs> well, you talk about family. I mean, I've got uh, two, ch two kids, Zoe, my eldest daughter, and Jason, my son. Zoe has three kids. Jason has twin girls. I've got five grandkids. Wow. And I, I, had a, I had a fridge sticker that said, 
if I knew grandchildren were so great, I'd have had them first. <laughs> so, and it's absolutely true. It's never true a word has been spoken. Um, I live in Spain. My daughter lives in Spain. My daughter's been there nearly 19 years. My son lives in Slovenia. He's been there nearly 20 years. My whole being is wrapped around my family. I'm very close to them. Um, I spent three, I spent six months traveling around the Caribbean uh, last last November. My grandson came with me and he, he spent his 21st birthday, or he, he celebrated his 21st birthday with me in Grenada. Oh. Now, I don't think as many granddads have their 21-year-old grandson spending three months traveling around the Caribbean. But I had a, a fantastic time and my my family are my greatest joy. It really is. And um, without them, then life wouldn't be worth living. Oh, beautiful, beautiful. So everything we've talked about today has been um, just a snippet in what is a you know much longer, more detailed, beautiful story of yours. And everyone out there can read that in detail uh, in your autobiography, The Third Degree. Where can everyone listening now um, go to to find a copy of the book and maybe order one? You can get it from, it's, it's, with a, it's, called, it's curtis-sport.com. And um, yeah, it took me a while to do it. I, I got pestered by my children and grandchildren that I should do the book. And the book really is a record for them. If people want to buy it, and I hope they enjoy reading it as well. Brilliant. Well, I will make sure that the website is linked in the description so everyone listening and watching can go and check that out. Brendan, thank you so much for joining me on the show today. It's uh, it's an honor to finally speak with you, sir, and it's been a real pleasure. It's been a pleasure speaking to you as well, Louis. Thank you very much.